morning, if you have your Bible, to turn to Luke 24, verses 1 through 35 this morning. And uh, as you turn to Luke 24, I don't know about you, uh, but it is not enough for me to know that Jesus rose from the dead. What I want more than anything is to know the Jesus who rose from the dead. I want to have a living relationship with the living Christ. And my guess is, if you're here this morning, you want the same thing, or you want to know that that's possible. Uh, Maybe you're wrestling through the claims of Christ's resurrection. Maybe you've been thinking about uh, all the people who saw Jesus die, who saw him buried, and then saw him raised back to life. Uh, You're thinking about Mary and Martha, the 11 disciples in the upper room. You're thinking about the more than 500 people Jesus appeared to at one time after his resurrection. And you're contemplating all of this and you're thinking, you know, this is hard to believe, but there is a lot of evidence for it, so I'm considering it. But if I believe it, what then? How do I get to know the Jesus who rose from the dead? Or... Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time and you believe that Jesus rose from the dead. You have faith in him for salvation. uh, But right now, you feel like the living Christ is not really living with you. Uh, You don't feel a close relationship with him. You feel like he's far away from you. And so you're wondering, like, how do I return to the assurance that Jesus is near to me and that he's with me? Or maybe you've been a Christian for a long time and you know that Jesus is there with you, but you've started to think that Jesus might be different than you thought he was. He might have a different view of the world than you thought he did. He might have uh, different expectations for you and the world than you thought that he did. Uh, You you thought that you understood him. You thought you understood what he was doing. uh, But now, because of of something that's happened, or maybe something you've read or heard about, you're thinking to yourself, as I have several times throughout my life, uh, maybe I don't understand Jesus as well as I thought that I did. But I want to. How do I grow in understanding who Jesus is so that I can adjust my expectations so that they are aligned with realities, that is, that they are aligned with God himself so that I can walk more closely with Jesus. Or uh, maybe you're a Christian and everything is great and you just want to know Jesus more and you just want to get closer to him. Uh, In terms of our recent series on prayer, uh, what you want is to drill the well of your heart deeper into Christ and his grace because you just desire all the joy and peace that's found there. And, and we've talked a lot about how prayer does that, but are there other things? And if there are, what are they? You see, what brings us all together today as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus is the desire to know Jesus and understand Jesus and grow closer to Jesus as the people that he saved and as the friends that he confides in, as the family that he lives with and that he wants to live with forever. And that is why Luke 24 is such a powerful chapter for me personally, because uh, here at the end of Luke's gospel, Jesus shows us all how this can happen now that he has risen from the dead and ultimately ascended into heaven. Uh, Luke 24 is not only 
a historical accounting of what happened after Jesus rose from the dead. It's also an explanation of how all of us, Mary, Martha, the disciples, uh, you and, and me, how we can all now see and know and walk with Jesus today and tomorrow until that time when we see him face to face in glory. So let's unpack that. Let's read Luke 24, 1 to 35. It's a longer passage, but it moves pretty fast. And then I'll offer a brief reflection on what Jesus wants us to understand about how we can know him and live with him and walk with him right now. So Luke 24, uh, starting in verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen clothes by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And as they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened, uh, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And Jesus said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And Jesus said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and beside all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they didn't see. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. 
Jesus acted as if he was going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay here with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, but he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us? while he talked to us on the road, while he opened up to us the scriptures. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven. And those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Thus far the reading of God's own word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this word, and Lord, we pray that you would use it to give us instruction in how we can know you more and grow closer to you and discern your work in our lives more clearly. Father, may the words of my mouth as your preacher, and may the meditation of all our hearts uh, be pleasing now in your sight, even as we pray that you would give us ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to believe your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, The first thing that we need to reflect on is the fact that when the women, uh, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary, the mother of James, when they get to the tomb, the resurrected Jesus is gone. Uh, We've heard this story so often that I don't think we really notice anymore how odd that fact is. Uh, Jesus just rose from the dead. Uh, He just defeated death. He just won. Uh, When you win at sports ball, uh, when you win basketball, baseball, soccer, football, when you win a race, a spelling championship, when you win a math competition, whatever, immediately after you win, do you just walk out of the room, get in your car, and drive away? No, when you win, you stay around so that you can celebrate your victory publicly with as many people as possible. You stay around so you can get the trophy and be celebrated. Jesus has just won the most important victory in all of human history. He's beaten the one enemy that we've never been able to defeat and can never defeat, right? The chances of you and I beating death and living forever apart from the work of Jesus is exactly 0%, right? The death rate from the fall of Adam and Eve till the resurrection of Christ is 100%. And since then, it is 100% until Jesus returns. But that's not the case for Jesus. Jesus and death went toe-to-toe, and Jesus won. Jesus defeated death. But instead of standing outside the tomb and celebrating like we would expect of winners, he's gone. That's verses 2 and 3. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Why? Uh, Why was the resurrected Jesus not there? And I think the answer is found in what the angels say to the women. So in verse 4, the women have stepped out from the tomb, or at least they've turned away from the tomb, and they're looking at each other in confusion. You know, where is our friend? Where is Jesus? And then in verse 4, we're told this, And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. 
And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. And apart from this being one of the funniest things God has ever told angels to tell people, right? Can you imagine God sending them down? Now remember, when they get down there and they look in the tomb, you need to ask them why they're here at all. It's going to be hilarious. Uh, Aside from that being hilarious, it's also a very profound point. If you're seeking Jesus as these women were and as you and I are, whether we're seeking Jesus for the first time or seeking to know Jesus more or to grow in him more, you don't go looking for Jesus in tombs or monuments or memorials because he's alive. You seek the living one among the living, as the angels say. In other words, Jesus is present among people. Jesus rose because he's going to live with us. You see, Jesus isn't at the tomb because his victory over death wasn't ultimately a victory over a a hole in the ground, and his trophy is not a stone rolled away. No, his victory over death was ultimately a victory over the hole in our relationships that death brings. His victory over death is found in living with us and in us living with him and with each other forever. And his trophy is the people, his people, living with him always. And that's why when Jesus rises from the dead, he doesn't just stand at the entrance of the tomb. It's why he doesn't wait for us to come to him to celebrate, to find him somewhere. No, he gets out of the tomb, walks out of the tomb, and goes immediately to the people that he rose to live with. He rose to begin new life again right now because that's the victory and that's the trophy. And that then brings us to our second point, which is Jesus draws near. Uh, So in verse 13, we shift scenes from the grave to the road. And on this road, there are two disciples walking toward a, a tiny village called Emmaus. The text tells us that this was about seven miles away. And we don't know why they were going there. We don't know why that was their destination. Uh, Maybe it was their hometown. Maybe they had family there. Uh, Maybe it was just a place to go because you can tell from the conversation, there's a lot on their mind and they just needed to clear their heads and they thought a seven mile walk might just be the trick. But while we don't know why they were going there, we do know why they were leaving Jerusalem. They were broken. They were sad that Jesus was dead. They were confused about God, about God and his ways and what he was doing, right? Everything that they thought they understood about where God was and what he was doing and how he was going to do it had been completely turned upside down. Uh, Like we talked about at the beginning of the, the sermon, some of you might be experiencing that here too. And so here are these two disciples experiencing the exact same thing. They're broken, confused, sad. They don't understand. Where is God? What is he doing? What has happened? And then Jesus draws near. That's verse 15. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. 
but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Now, I was reading this, uh, as I was reading this this week, some of the things that we talked about as we reflected a couple weeks back on that line in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, uh, they kept bouncing off or around my head, maybe off my head too. It's hard to tell. Uh, But since I think these things are helpful to understanding why their eyes were kept from recognizing Jesus, I think it's helpful to kind of rehash the main point of that sermon for a second. Uh, When we talked about praying for the kingdom of God to come, one of the things we focused on was Jesus' answer to the Pharisees' question of when will the kingdom of God come? And Jesus in Luke 17 replies, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or, oh, it's over there. No, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And remember, uh, Jesus's point there is that, the, is that God and his kingdom is always near. God is not absent from the world. His spirit is in the world. His word is in the world. God is working in the world. But God's presence and his work of saving sinners and maturing saints, his kingdom work, God's work of helping us and restore us, that isn't something that we can see with our eyeballs. It's not a building that's being built up with cranes and, and, and construction equipment. It's something, though, that we see through the work of the Spirit in our lives as we learn to discern the building, maturing, saving work of God. So now take that point and apply it to what's been happening with these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Uh, They are devastated. They're confused. They're hurt. They're angry. You can tell that in the response that they give to Jesus' question, what things? Uh, And... uh, they are lost. And what's the first thing that the living, resurrected Christ does? Uh, he goes to walk with his people in their brokenness and in their hurt and in their confusion. The king of the kingdom comes to build his kingdom in the lives of his people when they are just not in a place where they can discern his presence or understand his work. But yet, Jesus comes, and he walks with them because he is going to enjoy his reward, which is them. And he's going to enjoy and receive joy from them when they finally realize who has been walking with them and helping them this entire time, even when they had just no idea who he was. Now, I know some of you are probably thinking, well, Pastor Matt, like that idea of Jesus drawing near to us, seeking us out, walking with us in our hurt and confusion and pain, like that is so encouraging. I hope you feel that. Uh, Amen. Uh, But at the same time, uh, some of you might also justifiably uh, be thinking, uh, but can this story really apply to me? Because by the Bible's own telling, Jesus is now standing in heaven. This is not heaven. I don't know if you know that. Uh, And so if Jesus is in heaven, he isn't going to suddenly join me on a road to Emmaus or when I'm shopping at Walmart or when I'm walking in my car. 
So how does this idea of Jesus drawing near and living with me to grow a relationship with me and save me and mature me, how does that apply to me right now here in church? And that is a great question. And the text answers it. Because the text shows us that the way these two disciples come to see Jesus and the way that we realize that Jesus is alive and near and working uh, in us and in them is the same for them as it is for us. What the text shows us is that the way to discern the presence of Christ and understand his, his work carries over from them to us. Because you see, in this interaction, Jesus is showing us how we can discern his presence and his work in our lives now that he is resurrected and even ascended. He's showing us here how we can know that he is near and how we can know him and grow in him and deepen our relationship to him. And I can say that because of our final point about burning hearts. Not literally. Calm down, children. Um, I could just see some of the boys burning hearts. That's amazing. The Bible's great. Uh, I'm going to come back to their conversation and to the supper uh, but I need to jump ahead for a second to what the disciples said to each other in verse 32. Uh, right after they realize that it's Jesus who's with them and then suddenly Jesus vanishes, they say to each other in verse 32, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And that comment, did not our hearts burn within us, is such a loaded phrase in the Gospels. Quite literally, the apostles say, did not the wicks of our hearts or did not the lamp of our hearts keep burning while he opened to us the scriptures? Didn't the wicks of our hearts, didn't the lamps of our hearts keep burning? Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, there might be two, from, two sayings of Jesus that also might be familiar to you, that use the same Greek word and maybe jumped out at you when I gave that literal translation. The first is in Matthew chapter 5, verse 15, where Jesus tells his people, no one hides a burning lamp under a lampstand. And there Jesus' point is that the need to let the transforming work of God shine out of our lives as we join Jesus in his kingdom work. The other passage that appears is in Luke chapter 12, verse 35. And there Jesus tells us that uh, we need to keep the burning candle of our faith well supplied with the oil of God's presence so that we can follow Christ well. And the point there is our need to be near Jesus so that we can discern his presence and then the best way to respond to his presence. And by the way, there's only one more time that that word for burning lamps or burning wicks is used in the Gospels, and that's John's Gospel, where Jesus says that John the Baptist was a burning candle of God's ministry. Uh, you enjoyed his light for a season, but now the brighter and better light of Christ in his kingdom is overtaking it and shining in its place. So all of that to say this, when Jesus talks about a lamp staying lit, he's talking about a living relationship with him. He's talking about how our life with him changes us so that his gospel shines out from us. 
He's talking about the need to stay near him so that we can know him more, see him more clearly, serve him better, enjoy him more. It's about how the ministry of his presence keeps the light of the gospel shining and burning in our hearts. And then here, Luke 24, the disciples say to each other that the light of their life with Jesus their burning hearts, the transforming power and presence of Christ burned in their hearts while Jesus was talking to them, explaining the Bible to them, and I think celebrating the Lord's Supper with them. That's why the light of their hearts burned. That's when they discerned Jesus. That's when they understood what had been happening. Did not our hearts burn when he talked with us, when he opened up the scriptures. And at the end, we realized it was Jesus when he broke the bread with us. And that's why this carries directly over to us. This is why this story is about the way Jesus lives with us today. And let me spell it out for you even more. Uh, like us, the disciples on the road to Emmaus experience communion with Jesus through prayer. Because how else would you describe their conversation with Jesus? All right, in verse 17, they respond to Jesus' presence with frustration that he doesn't seem to know the important things that have happened. Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? What do you mean? Have you been living under a rock? And then Jesus invites them to explain it more, to speak on it Further? Give me more detail. Uh, I have a pastor friend who is an amazing pastor, um, and he, uh, he has a most annoying question, but it is always so effective. Would you tell me more about? And that's what Jesus, would you tell me more about that? You seem angry. Give me more. Give me more explanation. And then they empty their hearts out to Jesus. I mean, is that not a form of prayer? Beloved, sometimes Jesus comes to us in our life, and I, not physically on the road, I know, but through the Spirit himself or a person or an event, and he'll provoke a conversation with God about what's going on in our lives and in our hearts. And sometimes we'll even tell God, like, God, how do you not see this? Where, how is this not obvious to you what has happened and what is, is going on? How do you not know about this? How can you not understand this? You know what? I'm going to tell you what's going on, Jesus, because I'm so confused and I'm so frustrated. And then Jesus says, oh, tell me more. Give it to me. Speak on it. More words, please. That's a form of prayer. And since we've talked about that for kind of the last month or so, I'm not going to go into more detail on it right now. But I do think it's good for us to see that this element is there in this interaction. Because again, this is about getting to know the resurrected Jesus, and to discern his presence and prayer that is pouring out your heart to Jesus. That is a huge part of communion, as we've been talking about for a little while. And then the next thing to happen, after they've been praying to Jesus for a while, is Jesus explains their life through the Bible. And that's verses 26 and 27. O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. 
Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that's the Old Testament in its entirety, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Uh, my friends, I think it's important for us to realize that what Jesus is doing here isn't simply giving them the Bible study to end all Bible studies. I think it's too easy for us, at least it's too easy for me to turn this into some sort of like, and then Jesus sat down with a whiteboard and explained systematic theology to them, you know, intellectualize everything. No, what Jesus is doing is he's explaining to them the work of God for them in the Messiah. This is about reframing their understanding of God and how he works in the world and of themselves and the way that God is working in their lives and of the world and how God is working in the world. It's about reframing everything through the scriptures so that they can discern and understand what God has just done. It's not just, you know, here's some interesting things about the Christ that you should know in the Old Testament. It's here is the work of Christ for you. Here's how to understand the events that have just happened in your life and the work that God has been doing through them for you so that you can know him and trust him and grow in him. It's reframing their life so they can see it through the lens of God's own eyesight. And then finally, there's the Lord's Supper. And I know, as I'm sure some of you do, that there's disagreement on whether or not this is the Lord's Supper in Luke. Uh, a number of people that I deeply respect don't think it is, and I think they're wrong. Uh, because the, the way that Luke writes about this just to me seems so clearly meant to bring our minds back to when Jesus first instituted and celebrated the Lord's Supper with these disciples. In verse 30, I'm going to try not to break into my table voice here. Uh, when he was at table with them, he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. My friends, it seems to me the final thing that Jesus did to help them discern his presence was give them communion. And now notice that Jesus didn't eat with them and I think that's because he told us, as uh, we heard in our Good Friday sermon readings through Luke, that he would not eat this meal with us again until we eat it with him anew in the new heavens and the new earth. So that's why he didn't eat with them. But he clearly gives them, I think, communion, the Lord's Supper. Uh, he gives them one of the most fundamental ways to receive assurance about his work in their life. Because, beloved, the supper is a fundamental, foundational way for us to receive and grow in the reframing work of Jesus. It is central to uh, help us know that Jesus is near us, that he is for us, that he's living with us by the Spirit, because it tells us that Jesus died for us so that he could rise and live with us forever, starting now. Jesus prepares the supper, and then after prayer and the word and communion, they recognize him. 
So let me bring this all together. If you want to seek Jesus, you need to look for him among the living. And I would add, you should especially look for him among those whom he says he lives with, which is the church, the people of God. And you need to know that Jesus is near and that he is working even now. But in order to see him, what does Luke 24 show us that we need? We need prayer. We need the Bible. And we need the Lord's Supper. Or you could just say, we need worship. We need church. And this has been the case throughout the entirety of Jesus' life with his people. All the way back in the Old Testament, the Psalms are full of times when the psalmists were struggling with God's presence and purpose and plan. But after they spent time in worship, they start to discern how near God is and what he's doing and why he's doing it. I forget which psalm it is, but the psalmist will say, as for me, my feet has almost slipped because when I looked at the wicked, they're uh, always sleek and fat. Nothing wrong ever befalls them, right? He's tempted to join them. And he goes, but when I drew near to the temple, when I entered worship, then I discerned their end and where God was and what God is doing and why his calling in my life is not to join them in that lifestyle. Throughout Scripture, worship is the way that God reframes our life and our experience so that we can see the goodness and the redemptive work of Jesus as he builds his kingdom among us and in us and through us. It's praying to Jesus and hearing the Bible and having Jesus' word applied to our lives and celebrating communion with his church that keeps the light of our hearts on fire and growing. It's not the end all and be all, but it's clearly central because Luke 24 paints us a picture of this, doesn't it? It's, it's worship that begins and grows and deepens and strengthens our relationship with the Lord. And that's why to conclude, it's my prayer uh, that Sunday worship with the church will not simply be a priority for us in the future, though I want it to be a priority for us in the future. I want it to be the thing that we sacrifice other things to do. But it's even more my prayer that when we come to Sunday worship, that we come expecting it to be a time where we will be enabled by the Spirit to discern the presence of Jesus in our lives, and in our community's life, and in the life of the world. A that we come expecting to understand his work more keenly and to have our relationship with him grow deeper and more profound, where we can leave here expectantly hopeful and joyful because we know that Jesus is with us and working and in our midst. Because when he rose from the dead, he didn't just go back to heaven. He immediately comes to live with his people. And he's living with us now. And so, my friends, if you want to know Jesus, all that to say, you've come to the right place. Uh, keep, keep coming, keep praying, keep listening, keep taking the supper if you're a communicant member in any of Jesus' churches, uh, because the living Christ, he is in our midst, and he wants us to know him more. Amen? Let's pray together.
Father, as we prayed uh, at the beginning of the service, we want to know the resurrected Jesus. Uh, We want to discern his presence. We want to understand his purposes. We want to rest in his goodness. Uh, We want to respond well and by faith to his work. We want to be able to see the way that Jesus has been walking with us and is walking with us even now through your word and spirit and communion and fellowship of the saints. And so uh, we thank you for the blessing of worship, which we know you have given to us to help us see Jesus. And we ask that you would please fulfill that work in our lives now this morning and every Sunday as we worship you so that our hearts would be deeply connected to the grace and life of our Savior, so that the fire in our hearts for your gospel would be uh, always burning, uh, so that the life of Jesus would shine out from us more and more. And we pray this in his always victorious name. Amen.